Hey, good morning, everyone. This week I got my second COVID vaccine shot, and I have to say it went smooth as silk. Very easy, uh, good email communication, very organized, which is more than I can say for the sign-up process. The process of getting registered and scheduling an appointment, that was a totally chaotic, random, frustrating mess. But once I got my appointment, it was easy peasy. Mine was through the Atlantic Health Systems, and they did a fantastic job. So, and this is just my own personal opinion, let me encourage you to get the vaccine when you're able. It's an important step to get us to return to, you know, some kind of normal church life. So I had a good experience. And I have to say that afterwards, while I was sitting in the waiting area, you know, they make you wait 15 minutes after the shot to make sure that you don't have some kind of a reaction. While I was sitting there, I really felt a sense of freedom, like that dark cloud of COVID infection that's been hovering overhead for almost a year. It finally, it finally lifted a bit, not gone completely, but that dark cloud lifted. I'm still going to wear a mask in public and follow all the protocols, but there was the sense that the virus no longer had the same influence over my life, my thoughts, my emotions, you know, that it had before. I felt a sense of freedom. Now freedom, freedom means different things to different people. For some, freedom carries a political definition. Uh, this year there's been a lot of conversation about our, our basic freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom to assemble, freedom to worship, freedom to engage in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A lot of concern about restrictions and infringements on those freedoms. And globally, there are many places around the world where people have taken to the streets in a serious fight for their freedoms in Myanmar and Hong Kong. Uh, political, that's one way to look at freedom. But freedom can mean a lot of other things. I mean, for a teenager, freedom might be more connected to getting a driver's license than getting the right to vote. For others, freedom may mean, you know, getting out from under, under a financial debt or, or conquering a habitual problem. Freedom might mean experiencing reconciliation in a marriage or, or moving out of a toxic work environment. We know that freedom is much more than just political. I mean, we're the freest country in the world, and yet we see people all the time who are in personal and emotional and spiritual captivity, regardless of their economic or social class. The wealthy as well as the poor can be all tied up in knots spiritually and emotionally and just really imprisoned by their circumstances, captives of fear and anxiety. There are plenty of people who are politically free, yet they seem, don't seem to have any control over their own thoughts or actions or moods or Twitter rants. I thank God for the political freedoms we enjoy in America. We should always uh, be vigilant, uh, vigilant in, in preserving them. But we should also acknowledge that true freedom is essentially an internal quality. True freedom is an internal quality, and that the source of the real struggle for freedom is right here. It's right in the human heart. And to this struggle, Jesus brings these amazing words recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Here, Jesus is launching his public ministry in his hometown synagogue, and he does so by reading the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, from chapter 63. Now we're using Isaiah 63 as the theme for our messages during the season of Lent because it is such a hopeful passage about how hope rises from the ashes. Uh, Jesus reads just the opening words of Isaiah 61 that describe God's anointed one. 
God's Messiah, the Christ, who's going to usher in God's perfect kingdom. Luke 4, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now last week we looked at what it meant for Jesus to claim this anointing for himself. How at his baptism, God the Father poured out his special endorsement, his, his special blessing, his unique favor on Jesus, so all would know that there was something different about him. For Jesus to claim to be that anointed one, that was a big deal in and of itself. But what we're going to do today is expand on that and think about what this anointed one was anointed to do. He's not just anointed just to be anointed. He is anointed to do something. Five interconnected things. Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Proclaim recovery sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. And proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of these proclamations are outrageous claims if they come from Jesus, because no normal human being has the authority to make these kind of grand announcements on God's behalf. I mean, that's crazy talk. It's statements like these that riled people up in opposition to Jesus because they thought, you know, he's getting too big for his britches. I mean, it sounds like Jesus is just kind of pumping up his own ego. The Spirit is on me. The Spirit has anointed me. The Spirit has sent me. Three times the uh, me phrase is in there. Jesus is definitely pointing the finger at himself. It's all about me. And some who heard him thought Jesus was overstepping his place. He was claiming for himself things that belong to God alone. Now earlier, Christine talked about an encounter that Jesus had with a blind man that changed the man forever. There's another story like that in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, where Jesus is in a crowded home speaking to people, and while he's talking, some men lower a stretcher through a hole in the ceiling, and on the stretcher is a man who's paralyzed. Uh, they lower him right down in front of Jesus in the hope that Jesus would then heal him. But instead of focusing in on the man's legs, Jesus went for his heart and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And right after that, the next verse says this. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they were outraged because Jesus claimed for himself authority that belonged to God alone. No normal human being has that kind of authority to forgive sin. And of course, that's when we realize that Jesus is no normal human being. What Jesus is really saying is that he's God in the flesh, 100% divine, 100% human, and he's the only one who can set people free. Now, excuse me for getting a little theological here, but it's important to get this right. Jesus wasn't a good man who became a god, you know, a good man who sort of grew into his divinity. Uh, that's what the Mormons teach. He wasn't just a good moral example or even the best moral example for us to follow, as maybe liberal progressives may believe. He wasn't a god who pretended to be human, nor human who pretended to be god. Listen to how his divine human nature is carefully described in one of the great theological documents of the historic Presbyterian Church, the Westminster Confession of Faith. This comes from chapter 8, sections 2 and 3. The Son of God, 
the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the Manhead, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine. He was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. That's pretty deep stuff. This deep, full understanding of the majesty of Jesus, we need that in order to appreciate the impact that he can have on our lives today as God's anointed one. He brings all of the Father's love and power to bear on those who come to, to him in faith. He is the bringer of good news, the one who sets people free, the one who helps the blind to see, who ushers in God's kingdom. Jesus anointed as God's messenger of freedom. Jesus anointed to be God's champion of liberation. That was the foundation of Jesus' ministry. The message he proclaims is God's good news of freedom, recovery, release, and God's favor. And all of these are words of rescue and deliverance, all based on God's kindness, based on God's intervention to help us. And this reflects exactly the kind of impact Jesus had on the lives of people that he encountered, like that paralyzed man on the stretcher. On and on throughout the Gospels, Jesus brought some form of liberation to those who were willing to come to him in faith. He didn't just talk the talk. He proved he had the power to liberate, to forgive. He proved he had the power to reconcile to the Father. The story in Mark chapter 2 uh, continues this way. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what, was, what it was that they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to him, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, take up, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he got up, took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all. Jesus proved he had the power to liberate, to forgive, to heal, to set the captives free. Well, how? How is it that Jesus was able to bring such freedom? Well, first we have to go back and examine what is it that's holding people hostage? What has stolen their freedom from them and put them into what the Bible would sometimes call a type of slavery? Something is broken in this world. I mean, you know it and I know it. We feel it every day. The world is not working the way it should. It is not a working according to God's original design. It's screwed up. Some malware got into the operating system of our world and just screwed it up. The Bible word for that malware we call sin with a capital S. Sin with a capital S is our rebellion against God, our, our alienation from God, our desire to be our own gods, to go our own direction. And that deviation has affected everything else, including nature and the physical world. Sin with a capital S has consequences. The first consequence we're told of in Genesis 3 is, is death. I mean, that's the biggest consequence, a physical death where this body is going to wear out, but also a spiritual death 
because my soul is detached from my Creator. My soul is detached from the Father. Through my rebellion, I'm alienated from the God who made me, and that alienation brings a whole host of other symptoms. Greed and anger, lust, envy, jealousy, fear, a lack of meaning. I mean, lying, racism, oppression, prejudice, anxiety, damaged relationships, disease, decay, all these things that people might refer to as maybe their sins with a small s, all the things that people do, all the evil that holds people cap captive. Normally, people try to deal with these small s symptoms, fix the small stuff, and what they're personally feeling or experiencing. Uh, they try personal for reform. You know, I'll, I'll try not to be so angry. I'll be nicer to the kids. I'll think better thoughts. People tend to deal with only the symptoms, the small s, but never look to that deeper issue, to the big S, capital S problem, which is our sinful nature that's broken before God. This is what Jesus did so well. Jesus helped people with their symptoms, but he also went to the heart of the problem, to our very sin nature. And that is a problem that only Christ can heal. American author Henry David Thoreau once said, For every hundred people hacking away at the leaves of evil, there is one striking at the root. And friends, that's Jesus. That's what God's anointed one can do. He can strike at the root. Through his death on the cross and his powerful resurrection, Jesus breaks the power of sin and death over us. The Apostle Paul, this way, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Set free. That's the job of God's anointed one. Through Jesus Christ, we are set free. But not like someone who was, you know, like uh, unjustly imprisoned and then let go. No, no. I mean, you're guilty. And not like someone who was found guilty and then got out on parole because parole can get revoked. Parole for a convicted person, it's conditional. It's a chance to see if it's going to work out. But if you mess up, you go right back into the slammer. That's not freedom. Christ's kind of freedom is not a work release program. You're not sentenced to community service, you know, keep your nose clean. That's earning your salvation. That's not grace. When Christ sets you free, it's a total clemency, total forgiveness. The slate is wiped clean and your record is expunged 100%. The Bible word for that kind of action on God's part is justification. Justification means just as if you'd never sinned. Because of Christ, God the Father now looks at you just as if you'd never sinned, completely forgiven forever. When the Anointed One sets you free, that's an expression of God's total mercy. That's why Jesus could say in John 8, 31, If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Or I like the translation that says, You shall be free through and through. But as I said last week, Jesus puts a little twist on his reading from Isaiah 61. He changes it up. And this is what got people upset. He, as he's reading from Isaiah 61, he stops halfway through verse 2. He doesn't finish the verse. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there. He doesn't add the next phrase, which is, if you go back to Isaiah 61, and the day of vengeance of our God. He stops with the pronouncement of God's mercy and favor, and he leaves off the phrase about God's judgment and vengeance. And for his audience in the synagogue, that was their favorite part of the passage. 
That was the punchline they were waiting for. That's the slam dunk that they were wanting, and it didn't happen. You see, because they wanted God to pour out his wrath on all their enemies. I mean, they're their captive people, Israel was. And they liked that promise that God's going to get even with their enemies, make them pay double. That's what they wanted God's anointed one to do. They wanted the Messiah to come kick the Roman army all the way back to the boot of Italy. That was their nationalistic hope, that the Messiah was going to come and just wipe out all their enemies. And Jesus says, no, this is a time of mercy. The time of judgment will come. Jesus wasn't denying that there will be a time of ultimate judgment. Make no mistake about that. That day will come, but this is not that day. That day will come, but this is not that day. This is the day of God's mercy. The Apostle Peter teaches this to the early church when they were also questioning and wondering, when the Lord's going to come and set everything right? When's the kingdom going to come in all its fullness? It's here now partially, but when's the kingdom going to come in its fullness? 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? This is not the time of judgment. This is the time of God's mercy, of his favor. That was the good news message that Jesus brought to all. God's mercy is here to set you free. You know, many Christians experience that sense of freedom maybe at the moment of salvation when they first turn their lives over to the Lord. They, they sense a real liberation, some form of release. They, they feel it kind of drop away as the Holy Spirit comes into their lives. Maybe it's that cloud of de depression is lifted. Maybe they're set free from an addiction. Maybe shame and guilt just falls away, kind of like dirty clothes dropped on the floor. The person comes alive for the first time. They kind of walk on air. They feel so light and unburdened, a natural joy. But what about later on? For folks like that and maybe people like me who don't have a dramatic conversion story, what about later on? We discover that those things, those old small S habits are hard to break. We thought maybe God would just take all those desires away, all those old fears, all those old struggles. But we find ourselves being tied up and knotted up and held prisoner by the same things, those same small S's. Maybe it's your anger, your jealousy, your gossip, the way you try to control others. Are you experiencing the freedom of Christ right now, or are you living as though Jesus never set you free? Are you experiencing the freedom of Christ right now, or are you all tied up, all knotted up with all your old worries and old habits and old struggles? Ask yourself, what are my oppressors? What are the voices that are going on inside my head that are defeating me? What are all the lies that I'm believing about myself or about my future, my strengths, my weaknesses, my faith? It's important to identify the voices in your head because Christians, we can slip back into the slavery that we once left. There was a story in the news a while ago about a baby whale in California. Somehow its sonar signals got confused and it came in too close to the shore, got beached on the, got beached. People worked fast to get this little baby uh, whale back out into the water and they cheered as the baby whale started to swim away. But the whale was still confused and ran aground again. 
This happened several times until finally the Coast Guard had to tow the baby whale out into the ocean and then set it free. You know, we can be like that whale. We keep running back up on the same beach over and over again. We get lost, we get confused, we lose our sonar signal of faith, even after Christ has set us free. And so ask yourself, I mean, are you sort of like a beached whale? And I'm not talking about how you look in your swimsuit. But do you go back to the things, back to the habits, back to the attitudes, the actions from which Christ has already set you free? This isn't a new struggle. It's a struggle for every Christian throughout the ages. And here's just one practical tip to help each one of us in this daily and weekly struggle to experience the freedom Christ brings. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. The Christian faith is designed to be a community, a family, a body, and our strengths get multiplied the more we care about and connect with each other. Last week I mentioned that the word Christian literally means little anointed ones. Because Christ has given to us the anointing of that same Holy Spirit so that we might bring hope and freedom and encouragement to each other. The freedom that Christ offers you will often come through to you while you are serving and caring for others. Freedom often comes through the connective tissue of the body of Christ. Rather than the freedom of Christ just being an individual thing, Christ has freed us to be connected to and to serve others. I'm sort of a fan of reading American history, especially military history. Perhaps the most important battle of the Civil War took place at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in July of 1863. It was the turning point of the war where the Northern Army, the Union, finally gained kind of the upper hand against the Southern Confederacy. Before the war, this guy Lawrence Chamberlain was a professor of rhetoric and philosophy at Bowdoin College. He was a Phi Beta Kappa scholar who spoke seven languages. At age 34, he was given command, no military experience, but he was given command of an infantry regiment at Gettysburg, and they were positioned at the far southern end of the Union line on a rocky little hill called Little Round Top. The Confederate Army was trying to sweep around to get behind the Union lines, and Colonel Chamberlain and his regiment, they were the only thing that stood in the way. If, the, if they didn't hold their ground, the Confederates would be able to get behind the Union Army, possibly destroy them, possibly could have changed the entire outcome of the Civil War and the battle against slavery. After repeatedly being charged by the Confederate troops, Chamberlain and his regiment held on till fine. They were out of ammunition. Even though they were badly outnumbered, Chamberlain gave the order to fix bayonets. And he led his men in a charge straight down the slope of Little Round Top, right into the heart of the Confederate army. The Confederates didn't know this was a last ditch effort of desperation. And they see these wild guys charging down the hill. They quickly retreated. Chamberlain's action saved the day for the Union, and he received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions. In Michael Sharrow's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the Civil War called Killer Angels, he records that before the battle, Chamberlain gave a speech to some of the deserters who had given up the fight. They were fatigued, they were battle-weary, they were afraid, and he knew he was going to need every body he could get in the upcoming battle. And he wanted them to return to the front lines with his little army. And in their weariness and discouragement, they asked him, why was he fighting? And this is what he said. This is a different kind of army. If you look at history, you'll see men fight for pay for women or some kind of loot. They fight for land or because a king makes them or just because they like killing. 
but we're something new. This hasn't happened much in the history of the world. We're an army going out to set other men free. What we're fighting for is each other. Friends, isn't that what the church is all about? We're an army out to set other people free. We can help others experience God's freedom, to heal the brokenhearted, to release people from shame and despair, to let people know they're loved by Jesus with this ever, never-ending love, to give people the gift of forgiveness, so give them the gift of our mercy, of our compassion, of our hope. I believe this is what every church must, must rediscover as we move into a, coast, a post-COVID world. Every church will have to rediscover its purpose, reinvent itself, and re-engage with its neighbors. Let's let people know that we are an army out to set others free. Because when the Son of Man sets you free, you shall be free through and through. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the one, the only one who has the power, the authority, the majesty, the ability to set us free from whatever it is that binds us, to set us free from our capital sin, our capital S sin, this, this brokenness that we have between us and you. You can redeem that and reconcile that, but you can also then help us with all the small S symptoms that we really struggle with day by day, Lord. Help us as a community of faith to encourage each other, especially in these difficult times, to encourage each other so that we can help set each other free. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.